Proverbs 16, verses 1 to 4 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. All right. Good evening. Well, I just wanted to say that it's uh, just a tremendous privilege for me to be able to hear, to be here and to, to speak and to uh, present God's Word to you. Like, like Josh had mentioned, he's uh, not able to speak today. He's starting his vacation a little bit early, and it's a well-deserved one, let me tell you, with all the work this guy put, puts in. But um, just so you know, we're going through the book of Proverbs this summer. And I'm so excited to go through Proverbs 16, 1 to 4. Um, not just because I, I really think it's going to dovetail so well with Ben's sermon from last week, but it, it, as I've studied over these past few weeks, it's been a passage of Scripture that God has used to really just change my life in a cool way. So before we get into this amazing Word of God, let's bow our heads in prayer. <clears throat> Holy God in heaven, we we praise You. We thank You. We give You all the glory. Thank You that You had a plan in Your mind long ago to have each one of us in this building here today. We thank You, Lord, that You've revealed Yourself and Your truth to us through Your Word. And I just pray so hard, Holy God, that You will send Your Spirit upon us to soften our hearts, to open our minds, give us eyes that see and ears that hear, your word and your truth to us tonight. Father, be with us. Guide my words. In Christ's name, we pray all these things. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So what if God did not have a plan for Adoniram Judson? What if God had not weighed his spirit, found it wanting, and intervened in his life? What if God did not have a purpose and a plan for Adoniram Judson? What if God was not sovereignly in control of Adoniram Judson's life? You see, Adoniram Judson eventually became the first great American missionary, commonly referred to as the father of American missions. Serving on the mission field in Burma, he uh, translated the scriptures into the Burmese language for the first time. He established churches he shared the gospel. He inspired generations of future missionaries to go all over the world with the gospel of Christ. Truly, God had something amazing planned for this man's life. So what if God did not have a plan for Adoniram Judson's life? You see, it's significant to mention that God's plan for Adoniram Judson wasn't always Adoniram Judson's plan for himself. Earlier in life, he grew up with this uh, uh, staunch, rigid New England pastor as a father in the late 17, early 1800s, and he quickly became an academic standout. He went to Brown University, and while he was at Brown and the years following, he embroiled himself in all of this philosophical thought, and his worldview became so clouded by worldliness that him and his friends eventually decided that they were not going to follow God, that they reject the Word as ultimate truth. And 
they eventually came to this conclusion that God did not exist. One of his good friends, his closest friend in this group, was a young man by the name of Jacob Eames. Together, Jacob Eames and Judson would talk about uh, these, these naive Christian sheep that believed this stuff and how foolish it was and they mock them and they talk about philosophy and worldly things and we're, we're really just seeking after a, a worldly life. Well, after a few years, he lost touch with these friends and he lost touch with Jacob Eames and he was living in New York and didn't have many prospects, not much money and life's circumstances were such that he just felt it was appropriate to kind of go home to Massachusetts, see his family, so he resigned himself to travel home. And on his way home, he decided to stop off and spend the night at an inn. And that one night at the inn, God began interrupting his life. That one night he spent at the inn, God began asserting his plan over and against Adoniram Judson's plan. You see, all night long, Adoniram Judson laid in bed just listening to these disturbing howls and these painful groans and moans. And it didn't take him long to realize the person in the room next door was sick and likely dying. And just so disturbed and distraught at hearing this, he began to wonder, is this person prepared for death? And then his mind raced and his heart wrenched and he began to wonder, am I prepared for death? Is my worldview right? And he was so disturbed by this. So the next morning after a sleepless night, he walked up uh, to the innkeeper and just kind of asked, you know, how, how's this person doing that was in the room next to me? He's dead, the innkeeper said. Yeah, I was a young man by the name of Jacob Eames. Tough way to go. And Judson's heart just sank. This is a true story. And he sat there all night listening to this person dying in the next room and it was his intellectual friend from, from a few years ago, Jacob Eames, who didn't believe in God, rejected him. He was just so distraught that this person may not be prepared for death and it turns out that as far as he knew, he wasn't. And Jacob Eames held this worldview that was so similar to Judson's himself that his whole world was shaken in that moment at that end. And it was then that Judson began to realize that God had a plan for him. That he didn't randomly need to go home. That life's circumstances weren't such that he was randomly making this trip. That he didn't randomly decide to stop at this inn, that he didn't randomly get a room next to a dying man, and that that dying man wasn't randomly his old friend Jacob Eames. He knew that God was real and that God had a plan for him. So what if God were not firmly in control of Adoniram Judson's life? Well, if God was not in control of this missionary movement whose ripple effect touched countless lives with the gospel of Christ, never would have been. And Judson himself would have died someday some meaningless death somewhere like his old friend Jacob Eames. More applicably, what if God did not have a plan for your life? Well, thankfully He does. God has a plan for our lives. 
In fact, our lives are most controlled when God is in control. So I use this dramatic example of God intervening in someone's life as a way of introducing this deeply practical portion of God's Word. Proverbs 16, verses 1 to 4. Turn with me there. Proverbs 16, 1 to 4. And God's Word reads, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. Now one thing that Adoniram Judson's life shows us is that God is sovereignly in control. Proverbs 16, 1-4 conveys the same message. In fact, one of the things that pops off the page as we read these verses that's just underlying the truth of these four verses is that there is this inescapable distinction between God and us. Verse 1, we see that we have plans, but God ultimately has the answer. We have our ways, but God's the one that ultimately weighs our spirit. That we have work, God is the one that ultimately establishes that work. God is distinctly different than all of creation. There's a, there's a theological term that's used to articulate this distinction. God is commonly referred to in theology as the holy other. Not holy, H-O-L-Y, but holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. He's holy other. Nothing in all of creation is like Him. He is eternal. We are created. He's, his understanding is unsearchable. Our minds are limited. His power is immeasurable. Our weakness is great. He is infinite. We are finite. He is perfect. We are fallible. He is holy. We are sinful. And while we have been made in His image, and while He has revealed Himself to us, and while He loves us so much that He sent His only Son to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, knowing we could never do that for ourselves. He is not us, and we are not Him. He is wholly other. Now this distinction is all over the Bible. I mean, we see the differences between this holy God and this sinful humanity throughout the biblical narrative. One place in particular is in God's conversation with Job. Turn with me to Job chapter 38. And for those of you who aren't aware of Job's story, God has allowed a tremendous amount of trial and, and heartache and, 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 and suffering to come into this man's life, knowing at the end of the road God had this plan of restoration uh, in store that He was going to bless him and restore him at the end. But when we get here to Job 38, Job is right in the heat of this just unbearable trial. And for the most part, Job has dealt with it unbelievably well, giving God the glory, trusting in His plan, but Job does come to the point where he questions and doesn't think he can take it anymore. And then God gives an answer that reveals to us this incredible distinction. Starting in verse 1, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? You see, God is using these human images of building a house and He's applying them to His act of creation to show Job this distinction, to teach him a lesson. Because the answer, the implied answer to all these questions are no. Job wasn't there when God established the earth, when He created, when these stars shone into existence and these angels, the sons of God, shouted in glory. Job has no knowledge of things this wonderful. And God is telling him, yes, Job, I'm more powerful than you. I'm more capable. And you have no need to worry about my plan for you. So Job appropriately answers what God has said. And as I've read through these these passages, it's just been one of the more humbling experiences I've had in a while. Job chapter 40, verse 3 and 5, he answers God's words. He says, Then Job, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job 42, 1-3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Do you see this contrast? God is this infinite being who created the entire universe in incredible fashion. Job describes himself as a man of small account with no understanding or knowledge. So why talk about this distinction? Well, I I bring it up because it is underlying our text in Proverbs 16, but I also bring it up because it just has profound implications for our, our, our lives practically. It's important for us to realize and to understand that when life gets tough, when when, when uh, circumstances are stressful, when things are uh, annoying, when you're just trying to make your way, figure your way through this difficult life that you're not praying to, you're not depending upon, you're not placing your trust in a God with human limitations who goes about things, whose ways and plans are like ours. God is wholly other. And that is such a good thing for us. Because He is God, because He is Holy Other, He has the power to guide our lives. Because He is God, because He is Holy Other, He has the capability to direct us in ways that we just could never do for ourselves. Our lives are most controlled when God is in control. So since God is this holy other, He's distinctly unique from all of creation, 
He's also sovereignly in control of our lives. And what we're going to see in Proverbs 16, 1 and 2 is that God is not just in control of the outcome of decisions, daily, uh, big ones, lifelong decisions, uh, the, the sum total of your life. He's, he is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over the outcome. But He's also intimately concerned with the process of getting there. He's concerned with your heart, with your spirit, with your motives. And this is just an unbelievable two verses. So Proverbs 16.1 The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So much like Adoniram Judson discovered, we can have our own plans, but they are ultimately subject to God's answer. Now I don't know about you, but I, I love reading bumper stickers. I'm just... And I'm, I'm not the most responsible driver, I guess you could say. My wife would probably agree. I, I don't do anything crazy, but I, I tend to, um, I do tend to kind of daze off and not pay attention at times. And if I see a car that's just packed with bumper stickers, I'll try to get over there to, to read. And I need to get close because my eyes are terrible. So I'm tailgating this person trying to read their bumper stickers and it, uh, I just think they're so interesting. You learn someone's political views, their spiritual views, what they think is funny, what sports teams they like. Um, but I remember one distinct bumper sticker that was super popular in the Christian community a while ago, and it said, God is my co-pilot. And I totally understand why someone would slap that on the back of their car. They're, they're just excited to be a Christian, and they're just so, so happy that God is with them everywhere, and with them, and with them in life, and but there's something fundamentally flawed about that message. Because God is not passively in the passenger seat as we drive and steer through our lives. He's sovereignly in control of the outcome of everything. When my wife and I were um, getting married, we had a lot of decisions to make. As I'm sure most, some of you that are married, uh, you, you may remember, um, and one thing that the author of Proverbs just makes abundantly clear is that as people, we make decisions for ourselves, right? It says the plans of, heart, of the heart belong to man, that we make these plans for ourselves. And we do, don't we? We make daily plans, long-term plans, uh, all, all sorts of plans. And when we were getting engaged, we had to make all sorts of future plans. And I remember when we had the talk about what time frame we were looking at for having kids. Are we going to go for the two-year plan? Are we going to go for the five-year plan? I tried slipping in the 10-year plan, but that didn't work, go over so well. But we're making these plans. What would be best for us? Ultimately, at the end of all of our planning, the final answer comes from God. And I just think this is so practically important for us to really know and understand because as I was reading this, I, I was just so convicted on making plans for where I, where I want to work, where I want to live, what I want to do, with not even consulting, not even praying at times, just always thinking. These, the wheels are turning in my head and ultimately the, the answer comes from God and I need to resign those to Him. The great frustration that we face, of course, comes when what God has planned for us is not what we are planning for ourselves. 
And the process of submitting to God's will for us can often be difficult and trying and annoying and painful. But He's a loving God who knows what's best for us even when we do not. So when Adoniram Judson laid his head down at that inn, just wanting a good night's rest on his way home, the last thing he wanted was to be confronted with these weighty issues, to have no peace of mind or heart, to be torn up on the inside wrestling with this issue of his own mortality and his own standing before God. It wasn't fun. It wasn't comfortable. But when he had a plan for himself, God ultimately had an answer. And his answer was no Adoniram. These worldly things are not for you. You'll love me. You'll serve me. My plan is so much better. Praise God that his plan is better. So let me ask, what are you planning? What sort of things are going through your mind? What, what issues are before you? Are you at one of those places in your life where you're at the road and it's turning and you can't see around the corner or maybe there's a fork and you don't know which way to go? Do you believe today that God is ultimately and sovereignly in control of the outcome? So while God is sovereignly in control of the outcome, we also see here that He's intimately concerned with the process. He not only cares what we do, but how we do it. He's concerned with our, concerned with our motives and with our spirit. Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Uh, and there is just such a tension in this verse, isn't there? That we have our ways and we think they're pure. But God is ultimately the one that's actively measuring and evaluating and weighing what's in our heart. The condition of our spirit as we do things, as we make decisions, as we take steps throughout our lives. And When I was studying for the sermon and studying this passage, just to be completely honest, I got so stuck right at this point. Because I just stopped and I was like, man, this is such a great picture of how God is so holistically involved in our lives. He's in control of the outcome and He's concerned with the process. I need this illustration that's just going to put it into burning focus so that people will get this and know it in their heart and be transformed and changed and it will affect the way that they make decisions practically, but the way that they live their lives as a whole. And nothing came to mind, to be honest with you. Uh, So I kind of put it aside and just resigned myself to prayer. And God directed me to the book of Jonah. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Now the book of Jonah begins with God calling Jonah to go to this place called Nineveh where these wicked people are doing wicked things. And God tells His prophet Jonah, go to this place and preach repentance. But Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. And he knows that God in His ultimate grace and goodness and long-suffering, if he preaches repentance, God is likely to forgive the people and they won't get this judgment that's coming to them. So he flees to Tarshish in the complete opposite direction. Verses 1-3 to says just that. Now the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. 
the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now fast forward a few verses, and Jonah is in this boat. And uh, he's, w- he's with all of these people, and, and, and God causes this storm to come upon them. And the people quickly realize that uh, this is something supernatural. Let's cast lots, and the lot falls to Jonah, and he confesses, and they all decide to throw him overboard. And, and, and God uh, appoints this great fish to come and swallow him. And, this, and Jonah is in three days in the belly of this fish, and then the fish spits him out on shore. And he eventually goes to Nineveh. And he goes to Nineveh and he preaches repentance begrudgingly with this selfish spirit. And the people repent. Story over, right? I mean, God wanted Jonah to preach repentance in Nineveh. Even though he didn't want to do it, he had this horrible heart attitude. He went and did it. The people repented. God was in control of the outcome. The story is over. Thankfully, it is not. Jonah chapter 4 is arguably the most important chapter in the entire book. Because God not only is in control of the outcome, but He also takes careful attention to correct His his spirit, His heart, attitude, His motives. Jonah chapter 4, verse 5, he goes out into the, the wilderness. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah and he made it a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do, ang- I do well to be angry enough to die. And the Lord said, hear this tonight. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. So God appoints this plant to come up and shade him. God appoints a worm to come up and wither the plant. God appoints this scorching east wind all for the sake of teaching Jonah this lesson to correct his motives. One of the major themes in the book of Jonah is compassion. God had just radical, extreme compassion for these sinful Ninevites. And while God was in control of the outcome, it was also meaningful for God. It it mattered to Him that Jonah not do this with a begrudging spirit but that He showed the same compassion to these people that God Himself had. He cares about our ways. He cares about our motives. God is in control of the outcome. He's also deeply and intimately concerned with the process. 
Our lives are most controlled when God is in control. Uh, So do you believe that today? I mean, that's a pretty heavy question. Do you believe that God is in control of the outcome of your life? And do you believe that he's concerned with the process? More importantly, are you at a place in your life where you're willing to resign your will to his? And if you do believe all of that today, how is that knowledge affecting the way you approach your life? And I ask you because these are questions God's been putting on my heart and that I've been asking myself as I study. And to be just transparent, the answers aren't always so pretty. Um, But that's why we have this great God who's with us. So God is the holy other. He is distinctly unique from all of creation. He's sovereignly in control of the outcome. But He's also intimately concerned with the process So what is our response to all of that? I mean, we've talked about who God is and we've talked about His relationship to mankind, but is there anything for us to do? Is there any action step in there? And we do find that it's in Proverbs 16, verse 3, because it's appropriate for us to commit our work to the Lord. And 16.3 reads, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And a verse like that is so commonly misunderstood in the church today. Uh, A lot of people will see it and just say, well, really, I can just continue to do my own thing and as long as I pray first, right? God will establish it. He'll bless that. If If I go and do whatever and I just say I'm doing it in God's name, Right? He's going to establish that. Some people see a verse like that and says, man, I'm a Christian. God is going to flourish me. He is going to give me worldly things and as evidence of my good standing with Him. And while that would be nice, unfortunately this is no health, wealth gospel. That's not here in Proverbs 16. Instead, What he's talking about is an important reorientation of our heart so that our minds, our hearts, our values, our motives, our spirit, our thoughts, our our actions, all of them are coming into line with, with God's own will so that we're no longer thinking and acting and motivated in the way that we are, but we're living in a way that's in alignment with the will of God course has been so aptly mentioned last week something like committing our work to the Lord is beyond sinful finite people like ourselves so what do we do how do we commit our work to the Lord so that he may establish it we get on our knees and we pray and we ask God father This decision is coming up in my life. This hurdle is in my life. I don't know what to do. I selfishly want this. But I know that Your will is better. I resign mine to Yours. Let me think as You think. Renew my mind. Let me value what You value. Let me act as You would have me act. I trust You. In Christ's name, Amen. And then you get up and you trust that He will honor your prayer because He is a faithful God 
And He will faithfully establish your way. Paul says it like this. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Isn't that amazing that we, by God's grace, can discern His will? It says that it comes through the renewing of our mind and through testing. And when this happens, when our minds are transformed, when our values are shifted, when this radical change takes place in our heart and we are loving what God loves and thinking like God wants us to think and we're valuing what God wants us to value, the God of the universe establishes our plans. That's pretty awesome. Now Paul, when he was writing, writing that to the church in Rome, did not just make it up. I mean, as he writes, we know he got his, much of his theology from the Old Testament. He's being inspired by the Spirit of God. It also comes from some life experience. Because Paul knew firsthand what it was like to have his plans, his ways, established by God. Turn with me if you have your Bibles there to Acts chapter 16. Now up until this point in the book of Acts, Paul just grabbed Timothy and these guys are going all over the world preaching the good news of Christ. I mean, they are committed. They count their lives as nothing for the sake of the Gospel. That transformation, that renewal of mind that we just talked about, these guys are there. And we are going to see how God, in a very practical sense, is establishing their plans. Starting in verse 6, that was Acts 16, 6. And they, they being Paul and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So these guys have their plans. Even in doing the work of God, they have their plans. They wanted to go to Asia, but God forbid it. He's establishing their plans. They came to a point they wanted to go here. God said, it's better for you to go there. I'm going to alter your route. Verse 7, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. For whatever reason, of which we have no idea what it is, because it's not included in God's inspired Word, it was not God's plan for them to go there. So that He forbid it and rerouted their course. He is establishing their plans. Verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the Gospel to them. So what's going on in that passage? These guys are serving the Lord. Uh, they've made plans. I'm sure they've mapped out a route where they're going to go. These, maybe they focused on some people that need the Word. And as they're going, God is redirecting them and taking them other places. And because they are where they need to be, their plans, very practically, where they're going to go and be for a little while, where they're going to do their work, are being established. 
And God is faithful to establish their work and all they have to do is obediently go where God calls them. Pretty simple, right? Unfortunately, in God's ultimate wisdom, He's not always as clear with us as He was with Paul right there. So we labor and we have heartache. And I, I've been there many times. God, give me a vision. Jesus, forbid me to do one of these two because I don't know what to do. But one thing that we do know is that He's ultimately in control of the outcome. He's in control of the process. And He's so infinitely capable to care for you in the best possible way. So we've learned that God is this holy other. He's distinctly and uniquely different from all of creation. He is in control of the outcome. He's concerned with the process. We know that if we commit our way, our plans to Him, that He will establish them. Is there anything else that we can just... Uh, just really take to heart in this passage of Scripture. And there, there is Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. See, ultimately, the Lord has made everything for a purpose. He has a purpose for everything. I feel like that's one of those things I cannot say to myself enough. It's one of those things that as a cornerstone in my life that I realize I don't quite get all of it. He has a purpose for everything. He has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me. He has a purpose for the heartache, for the pain. He has a purpose for the joys. He has a purpose for the difficult situations, the tough decisions. He has a purpose for our church. He has a purpose for moving us from the old building to this building. He has a purpose for moving our meeting time from morning to evening. He has a purpose for you being here with us, listening to this, sitting before His Word tonight. He has a purpose for everything. We see that God has a purpose for His people. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And this part always just blows my, blows my mind which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's got a purpose for His people. He's got good works established for us that we might walk in them from long ago. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. That God even has a purpose for the wicked. And that's something that's just tough to wrap, wrap your mind around. And unfortunately, I'm not able to get into a lot of the details of that, but we do know that the lives of the wicked are not lost in God's economy. When Jacob Eames was laying there dying in that room, making those disturbing sounds, and Adnarm Judson was right beside him, having his whole world shaken apart, God had a purpose for Jacob Eames being there just as much as Adnarm Judson being there. The problem comes when we stop faithfully trusting that God has a purpose for the circumstances and we move forward trying to figure them out independent of His counsel and His will. So I hope you know that 
Your life is most controlled when God is in control. It's, uh, it's been my prayer over the last couple weeks of I, as I've been preparing this that if there's anyone here that um, maybe doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that you, understand, you, 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 you believe that He has a plan for you, but you don't know where to begin, that you might understand that He had a plan for you from long ago, that He knew you'd be here tonight, that He sent His Son to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sins because He knew it was something you could never do for yourself. And if you'll only place saving trust in Jesus, you enter in this amazing relationship with Him and begin your journey of following God. It's also been my prayer that if you sit here today and you have a relationship with God, I just pray so hard that you will just be profoundly encouraged by Proverbs 16, 1-4. It's just one of those passages that as God's people we read and just thank you, God. What I didn't tell you about Adoniram Judson's life is, yes, he eventually, that, that story I told you was a true story. It was part of his conversion. And um, he eventually went to the mission field in Burma where no one had ever been and um, he had, a, he had a hard time. He Actually, several of his wives died, not because he was married to multiple wives at the same time, but because he would get married and a wife would get sick on the mission field and pass away, and then he'd remarry and another one would pass away, and several children dying on the mission field, and he eventually was imprisoned and tortured for a little while and just had a difficult, difficult life. He eventually came to the place where his own life was coming to an end. His ministry was, personal ministry was dwindling. And, um, I mean, the ministry in Burma was thriving. He was just sick and he knew his, the end was coming. And before, t- it end, what ended up being two days before he finally died, he wrote something which I think is amazing. Not only does it show the difference of his attitude towards Jacob Eames' death, but he just sees this own glory in his own death. And I'm just going to read this to you. It's his words two days before he ends up passing away. Death will never take me by surprise. Do not be afraid of that. I feel so strong in Christ. He has not led me so tenderly thus far to forsake me at the very gate of heaven. No, no. I am willing to live a few years longer if it should be so ordered. If otherwise, I am willing and glad to die now. I leave myself entirely in the hands of God to be disposed of according to His will. See, Adoniram Judson had learned something by the end of his life that he didn't know at the beginning. That his ways, his plans, his very life was in better care with God. That his life was most controlled when God is in control. So I just want to ask, are you willing to echo Adoniram Judson's dying words? To say, I leave myself entirely in the hands of God to be disposed of according to His will. Know that your life is most controlled when God is in control. Let's pray. Holy God, we believe your word to us this morning. 
We believe you have a plan. We believe you have the ability to establish our ways. And we bow our hearts down low before you in humility and confess, Lord, that we cannot do that on our own. And we ask you, and Lord, I'd say a special prayer for each one here. I'm not sure what the circumstances in their lives are. I pray that you will in the power of Your Spirit, guide and direct their lives, Lord. Establish them. Father, we love You. We are so lost without You. Thank You for this time tonight. We pray all of these things by the power of Christ's name. Amen.